everybody and welcome back to your critically acclaimed the podcast where our patrons control the podcast yeah that'll work my name is William Bibiani <laughs> I'm a critic everybody calls me Bibbs uh, my name is Whitney Seibold I too am a critic I don't have a cute nickname you can call me what you like and uh, here at your critically acclaimed uh, we invite our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network our top tier patrons have the power to sponsor any podcast that they want, within reason, but pretty much any podcast that they want, and uh, we will produce that podcast. And they also have the option of co-hosting that podcast, if they so desire, and that's where we're at this week. Allow us to introduce our patron, uh, Sam Shearer, who has a wonderful premise for us this week. Sam, how are you doing? Doing okay. Um, excited to talk about uh one of my favorite directors i think you've said that you grew up uh loving this director's movies uh mel brooks yay yay uh, and i <laughs> i love I, mel brooks i love mel brooks too i grew up watching that you're right i did grow up watching mel brooks movies i know whitney grew up watching mel brooks movies um he has a really wonderful, like almost childlike sense of humor, but only on the surface. And once you're an adult mm -hmm. and you watch his movies, you realize there was a whole lot of mature and raunchy stuff that probably went over mm -hmm. your head when you were in elementary school watching these things on TV. Um, but Mel Brooks has made a career of writing and, as we're going to discuss on this show, uh, directing a vast number of comedy classics uh, comedy uh, 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 underrated icks, and also a, and also a couple of couple of duds. I think it's fair to say he, he's not. Yeah. They they aren't all winners, but when Mel Brooks was at the top of his game, no one made funnier movies. Yeah, and and even when he was at the bottom of his game, he still like had a bit of a sense of humor about what he was doing. Oh yeah, I mean he's one of those he's one of those filmmakers who their their talent, their creativity. Their desire to just entertain is so uh, overpowering that even when they made a bad movie, they still made a kind of fun movie, except for Life Stinks. Yeah. Uh, but hey, well, let's, uh, make, hey, let's make I, Light of Homelessness. What a great idea, yeah. Melbourne. I, I yeah. have issues with Life Stinks, and we're going to get to that. And oh, yeah. Yeah. I just watched that movie for this podcast. <laughs> I saw it a bunch of times when I was a kid, but I hadn't revisited it in probably at least 25 years. And I rewatched it again today. And <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that did not hold up. But uh, we're going to go through this in our usual fashion, much like we did with our John Carpenter episode. Uh, we're going to go through Mel Brooks filmography film by film. But before we do, I really want to talk to Sam because this was your idea. This was your podcast. This is what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. What is it about Mel Brooks that speaks to you and why did you want to dedicate a whole podcast to his films? Well, uh, like you guys, I grew up with Mel Brooks. My first introduction to Mel Brooks was um, I was visiting family in New York. And when I was 10, my parents took me to see the producers on Broadway. Okay. And uh, and I loved it. And uh, after that, started watching his movies. And then, you know, as a young Jew, uh, I went to, um, you know, a summer camp for Jewish kids. And 
really like all the it's just like regular summer camp but there's jewish prayers and everyone's quoting mel brooks movies <laughs> <laughs> like it <laughs> It sounds great, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, of course, more I've I've seen more uh, than others. Yeah. Seen yeah. some more than others. I've seen um, like a couple I had to watch for this podcast. Mm -hmm. But really, it's because I know his entire filmography. That's really why I want. And I wanted to come on because if you said something I disagreed with, <laughs> I wanted to be able to intervene and defend it. <laughs> like well, that's that completely reasonable. Yeah, I, 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 we, we've talked before, and I forget who originally said this, that listening to podcasts where people are like forgetting something that you know or are saying something you totally disagree with is kind of like being a ghost. And you're just like, no, don't say that. Why can't I control this? Why can't I? Why can't I connect with you? So uh, we, we're glad we can give you that opportunity. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks uh, got his start as a comedian and a writer on a variety of television shows, in particular uh, Sid Caesar's Show of Shows. Uh, and he would go on to create the really wonderful, or co-create with Buck Henry, the really wonderful television series Get Smart, which. I feel like has kind of dipped by the wayside in popular culture. There was a time when it was pretty ubiquitous. It was on in reruns all the time. People still loved it and quoted it. And there was that brief gasp in the 21st century where that Steve Carell might have been a thing, that movie. But mm -hmm. I feel like people don't talk about Get Smart enough. And I just want to take this opportunity before we move on to the films. See Get Smart. It's so darn funny. It's such a funny show. When now, he, I'm, when, I'm wondering, yeah. Well, I was wondering why it's fallen by the wayside because you know I've I've over the years they've tried to bring it back a couple times. There were some TV movies uh, late in in its run. Mm -hmm. They tried to reboot it with I think it was Andy Dick. It at was one Andy point. Dick, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then yeah, and then there was the, the Steve Carell feature film which got okay reviews and was reasonably successful. But yeah, it didn't knock anybody out of the park. Yeah, I saw it. It yeah. was. Fine. It's com it's, it's fine. very forgettable. Like there's nothing bad about it. You can watch it, but when it's over, you're like, "Oh, mm -hmm. was that that movie with Tina Fey where they went on a bad date, or was that Get Smart?" <laughs> like they're kind of the same <laughs> film. Like they're just kind of yeah, nice. and Hathaway goes on a bad date. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, but uh, here's the thing: Get Smart for you know, our generation mutated into Inspector Gadget. Uh, that, that's what that's what Don Adams did, and you know, Inspector Gadget is kind kind of if you look at it a little sideways, the Get Smart animated series, and uh, I think Way worse movie. Oh golly, yes. <laughs> oh. And it it could have been the Inspector Gadget movie that erased Get Smart from the popular consciousness once and for all. Yeah, just a thought. Pretty close. Um, I, I guess that's maybe it. I think it's just a matter of, I think it's a couple of things that have to do with this. I think it's not ubiquitous anymore. It wasn't like on reruns anymore. It wasn't um, the kind of thing people kept revisiting on a regular basis. And I think because it wasn't casually available, people had to search for it if they wanted to see it, if they were in a younger generation. And if they don't know about it or they don't have access to that DVD set, as streaming services become more popular, 
you just don't know it was a thing and you don't develop this close relationship to it. I've noticed that there's a lot of movies, TV, even music that when we were growing up was very common and now people aren't just incidentally being exposed to it anymore. They're not just randomly hearing it on a radio or noticing it as they flip through channels with streaming services and Spotify and all of these different, you know, digital ways to pick out media, the odds of running into something randomly are reducing and you're kind of only looking for the things you're, you only find the things you're looking for. And Mm -hmm. as a result, we're just not getting exposed to as much stuff, especially old stuff. And I regret the get smartest part of that, I guess is my overall point. Yeah. And part of that is also cord cutting in like a lot of cable. It just has a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And, and like I never would have watched. Um, I'm younger than you, so uh, <laughs> I never would have watched uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air if it wasn't just on Nick at Night. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a great point, exactly. And I wouldn't have seen mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that I saw when I was young. Like when I was a kid, it was really common to run into, you know, reruns of Mr. Ed. I haven't seen Mr. Ed around <laughs> anywhere. In any form, for oh, at least God. twenty years, I, I ran into I, Mr. Ed and watched a bunch too. <laughs> I, uh, I'm waiting. I'm now waiting for like the big the reboot of Mr. Ed. It's coming. They're going to do a big time. feature film of Mr. Ed. Oh my God, Patton Oswalt I, will start. I just it'll be great. One time, I just ran into a marathon of um um oh God, I just had it. Mm. Uh, Mork and Mindy. There you go. And just uh, and have watched. Every episode of Mork and Mindy. These are good shows. Not all of them were classics, but the ones that were good are still good. And yeah, it, it I find it very regrettable. But yeah. the important thing for this podcast anyway is that Mel Brooks was an incredibly successful writer who became an incredibly successful producer and then started to parlay that into a shockingly successful directorial career, starting with 1967's film The Producers. The Producers was a massive hit. It won uh, Mel Brooks the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. And it is, I think, he made he spent most of his career mostly doing spoof films of one kind or another. There's a couple of exceptions, but here he's kind of spoofing the Broadway atmosphere, the Broadway producers, Broadway people who put on the show, directors, actors, etc. But... This is basically an original concept, and what a concept. It's about a, uh, a a con artist Broadway producer, played by the great Zero Mostel, who teams up with an incredibly nervous accountant, played by Gene Wilder, to undergo a scheme in which they collect a ton of money to put on a Broadway show, and in exchange, give every single one of those investors, a percentage of the profit. So many percentages that it would add up to well over 100%. And then what they do is they intentionally try to engineer it so that the the show is a massive flop so there will be no profits and no one will have any reason to look at the books and realize that they all just got conned. That's a great setup for any kind of sort of crime movie. But then on top mm-hmm. of that, he, he has so much fun trying to create what is the ultimate bad idea 
for a Broadway show, and that idea <laughs> is Springtime for Hitler. A musical comedy about the rise <laughs> of the Fuhrer, written by someone who is actually a Nazi. <laughs> but the problem I find in this movie, I, I, what I love about it is that they, if, that, if they had left it at that, if they had just done the play straight, it might have worked and it might have just tanked and, and fallen apart. But they didn't leave it mm-hmm. there. And they ended up putting a hat on a hat and they ended up taking this absolutely horrible idea for a play and kept trying to make it worse and worse until they accidentally made it hilarious and then it becomes a hit play and now they have to find a way out of this horrible predicament. What an incredible plot. Yeah. it It's really funny. Um, I... I... Gene Wilder, and I think this is Gene Wilder's first movie. Uh, uh I actually will check on that. I, it's it was around the same time as uh, Bonnie and Clyde, which he was in very early on too. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde was the first film, however, it was the same year as the producers. Ah, uh, so very very okay. close, so very, very 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 close. close. Yeah, good good year for Gene Wilder. Very My good God. Year for Gene Wilder. Nominated for an Academy Award for this performance too. So yeah. right off the bat, the O in Mel Brooks's EGOT. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mel Brooks is making a kind of a love letter, love letter slash hate letter to the politics of Broadway, which is odd because he's actually not a theater guy. He came from like stand-up comedy. He was one of the Borscht Belt comedians, and then he moved almost directly into radio and TV. He was, I mean, I, I know he like was always affectionate about the theater. And when uh, we're going to talk about the elephant man at some point, you get to know that he's actually a, a, a great lover of the theater. But I find it kind of unusual that he would choose his first film project to be kind of a send up of the theater world. And I'm wondering what inspired that. I see some artists who are well, constantly or well, not constantly, who occasionally will tackle a topic that they don't seem like they would be interested in. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, in uh, there's a documentary on um, Amazon Prime. I forget the name of it. I mm. saw it. It was, it's a, it, I think it's from 2013. Uh, he said, like, he fell in love with theater when his like uncle took him to... Um, a Broadway play when he was like nine and they sat all the way up in way in the cheap seats and he loved it. And I think, uh, it's that, uh, that's why it was his first movie. Cause that was kind of his introduction to show business. Mm. And, mm. and you can always see his affection for musical theater in almost <laughs> if not all of his films. No, not not all of them. And sadly, we don't have one in like the twelve chairs. But like in pretty much all of his movies, he has a musical number of one kind or another. And Any excuse to for a musical number? Pretty much, honestly. It reminds gets, me of kind of Seth MacFarlane is also the same way. Yeah, and well, I think Seth MacFarlane is partly inspired by him too. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Mm-hmm. But but uh, what I think is what I notice is that when Mel Brooks does a musical number. Um, he's he's usually doing two things. One, he is he seems to be completely in love with how celebratory and sincere a musical number is. You don't go into a musical number 
because you're bored. You go into a musical number because you're feeling a lot of big emotions and you're passionate. And when his characters have an excuse to do that, he will take that excuse. But he also realizes that when you are that sincere, when you are that open and you are that uh, uh, sort of honest with the audience, you leave yourself open to set up amazing jokes. And a lot of the best jokes come when the audience is least expecting it. Someone just fell off a building. <laughs> uh, but uh, the audience... That is yeah. me being unprofessional. I'm sorry. It happens to all of us. Don't worry about it. But uh, uh, when your characters are being sincere is a wonderful time to do something funny to sort of subvert that for humor. And so when you see a big Broadway number with a lot of incredibly talented dancers and singers, but what they are singing is a song called Springtime for Hitler, the cognitive dissonance just hits you like a freight train and you don't know what to do with it. And your only option, because you know where the movie is at and you know this isn't like some kind of pro-Nazi movie, your only option is to laugh because it becomes incredibly mm -hmm. absurd really fast. He he has a weird talent of uh, looking at material that is on its surface incredibly offensive and making it seem weirdly innocent. I think you know he's tackling these really horrendous topics, but he's doing so with such good humor, and he gives no actual credence to the hateful language in his movies that it becomes really kind of. Like it, it becomes really palatable for one. Like you, you're not just sort of sitting there disgusted with the the shocking language, but it it he's he manages to actually make it funny, which is no small thing. Yeah, and that's and that's a kind of an important thing I think when you're doing kind of confrontational or shocking humor is you want the audience to feel safe, and I think that's yeah. a really important thing in this film and then later on in particular with Blazing Saddles where he talks a lot about race issues and. In that film, and, and, and I think in the producers, there is this overall sort of patina of childlike innocence to the humor that you know that there's no hate here. There's no yeah. actual animosity towards anybody. And you know that anyone who actually ascribes to these hateful ideas is being portrayed as the ultimate idiot. And the ultimate yeah, buffoon yeah. and the brunt mm -hmm. of all the jokes. The jokes are never on, the jokes never punch down. The jokes aren't on the people who are being uh, 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 oppressed. Cool. They're always on the yeah. people who are doing the oppression. And it becomes like a Bugs Bunny cartoon where anything can happen to Yosemite Sam. He deserves it. And we get yeah. that kind of here, whether it's. Um, uh, the Nazi who writes the play, who is never treated seriously for one second, and then eventually mm. on Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder, who get their comeuppance. But gosh danged it, they refuse so, to stop. Uh, and LSD, never really taken seriously, but he's not. He's, uh, uh, Lorenzo Saint Dubois. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, these, are, <laughs> these are characters who are silly. But they don't actually do anything to deserve any ire or anything. We're, we're sort of laughing at them because they're funny. But they're also not bad. The people who are bad get their comeuppance in a Mel Brooks movie. And I think that's that's all. And Roger Debris is 
a bit of a stereotype. <laughs> Let's be fair. There's a lot of stereotypes. Yeah. In a lot of Mel Brooks movies, mm. but again, there's and, not. There's no. I don't. I don't sense, and and some people might yeah. disagree, but I don't sense a lot of animosity here. I sense that yeah. it's all very affectionate and knowing, and you'll notice that there's a lot of, like Mel Brooks, in particular, has had. Uh, kind of ups and downs in how he has treated homosexuality and humor. Uh, mm -hmm. There are just light off the wall jokes, which may or may not be offensive. Silent movie just has this recurring gay panic joke, which is not great. And, you know, it's totally cringeworthy. But then when he, and he didn't direct this, but then when he did the remake of To Be or Not To Be, which I actually think is really good, um, he actually. They actually made a point to include the homosexual experience in World War II and make sure that when people that that was foregrounded, so that people knew that the oppression that 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 oppression should they thought it was important that that oppression should be actually featured and taken seriously yeah. as seriously yeah. as anything else. So I get a sense that I actually he thought he directed that. I it feels <laughs> like a Mel Brooks joint, but he didn't yeah. actually. It was his longtime choreographer. Oh, was it Alan Johnson who directed that? Hang on. I, I'm, I feel like I'm getting the name wrong. Oh. <laughs> uh, of all the times with the letter O to break on my computer, I can't, I can't <laughs> uh, look up. Alan, Alan Johnson directed the, the, the 80s, to be okay, honest. Okay, that's me. what I thought. Yeah, and the, Alan Johnson was a choreographer who worked with Mel Brooks many times. Um, and mm -hmm. he did a great job. I actually think that movie is really good. Um, but uh, anyway, does anyone much have It's the same as the original, though. Hmm. Yeah. There, there are some jokes added in. in some yeah, of, but... I mean, I'm not saying it's a brand new thing. I just think it's it's when you think about, oh, they remade this classic movie, and then you watch the remake, and it's like, actually, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, for a remake, yeah. But, uh, that, it, it, I think so. There's, there's nice. a really, there's a cute gag with that movie. Um, Anne Bancroft, uh, Mel Brooks' wife, plays his co-star, and in the movie also plays his co-star, and... Uh, mm -hmm. She's uh, a, you know, one of the the bones of contention between them is that she's not credited as highly as she as he is. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, and indeed, and she points out on one of the posters that not only is her name smaller or off to the side, but it's in parentheses. Yeah. And if if you actually like look it. at the, it sets your name apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. But if you look at the uh, the to be or not to be poster, the actual film poster. It sells Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. They're the same size, but Anne Bancroft's name is in parentheses. <laughs> it's adorable. Anyway, I, I don't think that movie is like probably like on this list, but it's it's worth checking out if you like Mel Brooks movies. It, I think too often it's disregarded. Uh, let's move on to The Twelve Chairs, Mel Brooks' second film, which I think oh. most people don't talk about very much. Um, it is an adaptation of a novel, which I have not read, uh, but it's a Russian novel from 1928, and it is about... Uh, a fallen member of the aristocracy who finds out from his dying mother that she hid their family uh, jewels, which are worth a fortune. Uh, she sewed them into one of a set of fancy chairs, one of a set of 12 chairs. And he goes on a mission along with uh, a young and incredibly dashing Frank Langella uh, mm -hmm. to track down those chairs and... All of the adventures in an attempt to acquire those chairs lead to madcap 
craziness. And meanwhile, Dom DeLuise plays a preacher who uh, gives up on his faith in order to pursue uh, his wild dreams of avarice. And I have a confession to make. I had not seen this until we started talking about doing this podcast. And frankly, I didn't like it very much. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't care. It, it didn't really make me laugh. I thought it was kind of like, I felt like it, we talked about the sort of innocence that comes from a lot of Mel Brooks's movies. And I felt that this movie has a much harder and more cynical edge to it that I yeah. thought really wasn't always in Brooks's wheelhouse. I thought the best parts of the movie were when Dom DeLuise is just being crazy. Yeah. And I lo- and I really I will say this. I love Franklin Gell as an actor and I think he mm-hmm. actually makes a great debut here as a leading man, but I actually feel like he's kind of in a different movie and he's playing like <laughs> he's playing it so straight whereas well, everyone else is well, so broad. I feel, I feel like um because he's the main character and the plot follows him. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I feel like Mel Brooks and Dom DeLuise are the ones that are in a completely different movie because they're playing so broad. <laughs> the other thing is that Mel Brooks is only in this movie for a couple of scenes, and I got used to him being around, and I wanted to see yeah, more of he, him. He plays a drunk, and he's just gone after Act 1. Well, he plays like the former servant of the... It's kind of... Uh, and kind of masochistic... Uh, a servant of um Ron Moody, I uh, think is the actor. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> listen, he's a scene stealer in that bit. And it's important to remember that Mel Brooks, who would go on to star in a lot of his movies, he wasn't in the producers except for one line in Springtime for Hitler, which he yes. overdubbed. And, uh don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> uh and then here he's he's got a small supporting role, but he wouldn't actually take the lead in a Mel Brooks joint until silent movie. Uh, and you see here that like, yeah, he can totally captivate a screen, but yeah, I don't know. For me, it just feels like the tone of this movie is never quite right. Whitney, have you seen this one? Uh, it's been a while, um, but I have seen it. I, I wanted to catch up before watching this just so I could have it fresher in my mind. But uh, from something I, I didn't know really well at the time when I saw it was the ins and outs of Russian literature, specifically Russian comedy, which, you know, you don't really know a lot of, uh, like, Russian comedies from the 20s, but this is clearly a big political send-up. It's uh, trying to really rip down the Iron Curtain, essentially. It's trying to send up uh, uh, how the communist world and how communism was always kind of destined to fail and how in... Uh, selling yourself to these kind of certain kinds of ideals you're just going to come about to ruin. So it's about these characters that are all fools, mm. every last one of them, mm-hmm. and we're just sort of waiting for their foolishness to undo them. Uh, I sense that Mel Brooks actually had a really keen eye for a certain kind of political satire. He, I mean, you look at look look at the producers. For God's sake, he was using this really kind of light humor and this uh, gentle love letter to theater uh, as a Jewish man to attack the Nazi regime in the mid '60s. Uh, he was turning them into buffoons, and while that's fun and it's hilarious, it's also incredibly daring. 
And I feel like he was really trying to lean into a little bit more of his need to criticize world politics with something like the 12 chairs. Uh, but it wasn't quite successful because I think we're used to the Mel Brooks who does slapstick humor and breaks the fourth wall and does these broad farces. So yeah, it, it's this, I think this one and life stinks might be the only ones that don't directly turn to the camera at, at, at any point during the movie. And I will agree with you, Bibbs. I, I didn't really like have any big laughs in this movie. Like I, yeah. yeah. And, uh, as, uh, someone with epilepsy, I do not appreciate the seizure acting. Yeah, there's this First whole all, scene in the movie where like Ron Moody has to pretend to have seizures in order to like get money begging on the street. And it, it, is, it is offensive. Because, it is crap. Because uh, it is uh, the second worst seizure acting I've ever seen in a movie. Number one is Eight Crazy Nights. <laughs> oh, I still haven't seen <laughs> that. Oh, gosh. Oh, uh, um, the, the little old man mm. has like epilepsy. And they make it a joke, and it's awful. Uh, no, yeah. I agree. I was I for, almost forgot about that, but yeah, you're right. There's this. There's like it happens twice in the movie, and it is in really poor taste. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting at, where it feels like this movie has this really mean streak to it. And in fact, I was reading up on it, and the ending of the novel is actually much darker than what Mel Brooks put on screen. And I just feel like he's kind of fighting that. I feel like even though he was very daring to only 20, 25 years after World War II uh, be so confrontational about the Nazi party uh, that I feel like, but he was also doing it with very lightly. He was doing it with a light touch. And the 12 Chairs isn't light, except for some of the Dom DeLuise sequences. The 12 Chairs is actually pretty harsh. And I just see him kind of struggling with it. Um, so it, it's not bad, but it definitely feels like on the low end of his filmography for me. I don't, it definitely doesn't like succeed for me on all of its intended levels. But is a interesting double feature with Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> I have a confession. Like, I've never seen Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> I've never seen it. I will get to it, but I've never seen Dr. Zhivago. It's the only David Lean movie I've seen, wow. which is unfortunate. Okay, well, that's... And I will get... I will eventually get to the other ones. <laughs> People forget Dr. Zhivago was a massive success. If you look at, like, the, the highest-grossing films adjusted for inflation... Like based purely on number of tickets sold, Doctor Zhivago is still in the top ten in America. Yeah. Well, it was nominated for Best Picture, so you'll get to it eventually. We will. We definitely will, and I'm excited to <laughs> it, do so. It won uh, Best Production Design and Best Cinematography. Deserves it for both. Awesome. Well, let's move on. Uh, 1974 was an amazing year for Mel Brooks. He's not a lot of filmmakers have more than one movie come out in one year. And not a lot of filmmakers have those movies both be classics. A lot of people point to Steven Spielberg with Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, two very different films that were both really huge. Uh, but in 1974, Mel Brooks directed and released two of the funniest movies ever made, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. And let's talk about Blazing Saddles first. Uh, it is the story about, uh, uh, much like a lot of uh, Mel Brooks's movies, it kind of centers around some sort of con um, where uh, they're trying, there's a big land grab deal in the Old West, and they're trying to uh, scare these people out of their land. And 
when they ask for help from all of these uh, ruffians and rogues who are tearing up their town uh, in an attempt to demoralize them, uh, Harvey Corman sends the first black sheriff in American history, played by the great Cleavon Little, uh, to their town. And their initial response is immense racism, absolute rejection Mm -hmm. of this. They feel insulted. And over the course of the film, he proves to be the greatest sheriff the West has ever seen. And it's delightful. It's weirdly delightful. And and he... The, the, the element you left out is Harvey Corman sends Cleavon Little to this little town, Rock Ridge, knowing that he would be met with racism. That's what I meant. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. He, yeah. yeah, like he, he is himself racist and he knows everyone will respond to him in a racist fashion. And Cleavon Little, golly, why wasn't he a bigger star? Because he <laughs> is charming AF in this movie. Yeah. Uh, he is able to bear all of their hate in sort of a with sort of a, a, a wearied annoyance. Like, this is something he encounters all the damn time, mm-hmm. and he is able to stand up and be a good man despite all of this. Uh, and watching him and Gene Wilder together, you know, they're a wonderful, wonderful comedy duo. I'm not really sure this, this film steps wrong in any kind of way. Mm. Uh, I mean, the humor is, of course, incredibly dated, mm-hmm. but... This is maybe one of the only times where I've ever laughed uh, at a fart joke. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to do a good fart joke nowadays, isn't it's, it? Yeah, yeah, and and it has and it has one of my favorite kinds of endings—the one where they just sort <laughs> of like they step out of the movie and end up fighting in front of Grumman's Chinese. It's amazing. I'm curious yeah. what everyone's take on this is because the movie was co-written. Brooks had a lot of co-writers for a lot of his screenplays, but this one in particular was co-written by the great Richard Pryor, and the original intention was that Richard Pryor would play the lead, and the studio thought Richard Pryor was too controversial a comedian, and they were worried it wouldn't work. As amazing as Cleavon Little is, do we feel that it would have been even better with Richard Pryor, or that it would have been a lateral move? I feel like Uh, it it might have been lateral. More of a lateral... I think both would have been great, mm-hmm. but it's hard to tell because we didn't see the Richard Pryor version. Naturally, yeah. With and you, yeah, sorry, yeah. Oh, um, no. I think I think it would have been a very different film. I've seen Richard Pryor in a lot of films, and uh, he he tends to play kind of nervous characters. I guess I, I don't think he would have had the same kind of confidence that Cleon Little has. Mm. I don't know. I've always sorry, Sam. You go because uh, uh, Cleveland Little plays his part like he's confident and he knows he is smarter than everyone else. I agree. And and, yeah. He, sorry, I didn't mean to. And it makes him. It it fits the character very well. Of yeah. Anyway. I'm sorry. I I apologize for interrupting you. Um. I was I was just going to say, I feel like Richard Pryor, as brilliant a comedian as he is, he often feels very laid back in a lot of his actual delivery, especially when he's acting. He's always very uh, naturalistic, I think, compared to Cleavon Little, who I think has a bit more of an arch delivery to a lot of his stuff, whether it's this or uh, Vanishing Point or, hell, even Once Bitten. Like, he's always... Uh, 
a pretty big actor. And I think it serves mm. him well. I think it fits Mel Brooks well, but it would have been fascinating to see. Uh, Sam, have you ever seen uh, the TV pilot that they did with Louis Gossett Jr.? No, I haven't. Do you know the story behind it? Uh, yeah, because uh, I watched your episode. Oh, okay. Of Canceled Too Soon on it. I just want to make sure <laughs> people know about this because it's really weird. Uh, Mel Brooks... Uh, didn't want the studio to be able to do a bunch of sequels or other exploitations of Blazing Saddles uh, without him. And so he inserted a, a clause into his contract that said, if the studio doesn't do anything else with Blazing Saddles before, I forget how long it was, like two, three years, uh, then the <laughs> rights will revert back to Mel Brooks and he can he can do whatever he wants. And he assumed that they couldn't because it's this incredibly you know racially charged comedy and they would have no interest. Uh, but he forgot to include in the contract that they actually have to release whatever that they make. So Fox, I believe, was the studio. They ended up making a multiple seasons of a television series starring Louis Gossett Jr. in the Cleavon Little role. And they never released it. They just had to keep making it. And somewhere, all of those episodes are in a box. But you can watch the pilot episode on the Blazing Saddles Blu-ray. And it's not as good, but Lou Gossett Jr. is good in it. Mm -hmm. um, okay, uh, any last thoughts on producers before we... I'm sorry, producers. On Blazing Saddles before we move on. Uh, well, I'm not good talk at length about blazing saddles I just think it's, yeah. it's brilliant i love it it's it's one of those movies that uh it was on regular rotation in our house like we had it on vhs and whenever we couldn't think of something to put on we'd eventually just sort of event come back around to blazing saddles and it's one of those movies where you've seen it enough times you put it on and you think you're gonna regret it like, oh, no, not this one again, and you're going to start getting bored with it. But it always won us over. Uh, by the time uh, we got to, to the wonderful scene between Harvey Corman and Mel Brooks himself as the governor, uh, where he plays the governor as this weird, mad drunk, essentially, uh, by then everybody's won over. Yeah. <laughs> William Le Petoman, based on a real historical figure named Le Petoman, who uh, directly translated means the fartiste. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, what? That that is what yeah, that is what yeah, that he word means. On command. I did not know that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, they, they made a movie about that character. It was called Restoration back in the nineties. Uh, Robert Downey oh, Jr. That, played that character. Oh, I didn't realize that. Wow. Well, okay, now it makes sense. Okay, yes, I like that movie. Yeah, Restoration. That, that was that was Le Man. And um, okay. Yeah. By the time we got to that scene, everyone was completely won over. And by the time we got to the end, you're. You're just laughing again, even though you've seen the movie about a dozen times. Uh, so yeah, it was really that one and Blazing uh, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein were really, really commonly played in my household. So they became sort of in jokes with my family almost. Uh, another inside joke that we particularly liked is uh, I come from a family of Methodists. We go to Methodist church, and uh, there's a bit where. Harvey Corman says he wants like all of the most horrible people you can find, you know, mugs, pugs, thugs, halfwits, dimwits, and then the last thing he says is "and Methodists." That always got a good, a big laugh. In, uh, in I think Methodist my uh, favorite, my favorite line of it is when he's, um, uh, Waco kid is telling uh, his backstory about why he's a drunk now, and this is, I must have. Killed more men than Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, uh, Sam, why don't you take us into uh, uh, Young Frankenstein? Same year. Why don't you set the film up for us? Okay. Um, uh, I do. Oh, where do I start? <laughs> I've I've never done this before. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, 1974, The Young Frankenstein is uh, a spoof of uh, the Frankenstein movies. It's about the, I believe, grandson of, uh, is it uh, grandson or great-grandson? Uh, it's just, just his grandson. Uh, yeah, his grandson. Yeah. Of, um, oh, what's his first name? <laughs> Victor Frankenstein. Uh, Victor Frankenstein. Mm. Uh, who gets a letter uh, saying that he has inherited his grandfather's estate and uh, moves there and uh, tries to continue his his family's work. Yeah. Um, The the zeal with which Gene Wilder resists the urge... (laughs) To be a mad yeah. scientist is, I think, really important here. I think it really drives the first act of the movie because <laughs> otherwise the movie just gets going really, really fast. And I think they do a really good job of showing how much he resents being forced to be part of this legacy. And then seeing him just dive in, you know, with arms akimbo, surrounded <laughs> by lightning, is just absolutely exhilarating. I love this movie more than like members of my own family. Like I love (laughs) young Frankenstein so much. I think this movie is one of, if not the most perfect comedy like I've ever seen. And some of it is rooted in its homage to the Frankenstein movies in particular, uh, a lot of bride of Frankenstein and son of Frankenstein, which is where most of the basic plot comes from. Um, But I don't think you need to know any of that to appreciate the absolute unbridled, like, zeal with which Mel Brooks, like, just dives into this genre. And more, I think, than any other spoof film that he did. And I'm including everything from Silent Movie to Blazing Saddles to Spaceballs to whatever... This is the one where Mel Brooks took it upon himself not just to lampoon things, but to recreate them. And Young Frankenstein looks as good as any of the classic Mm -hmm. universal horror movies. And some of those movies looked amazing. This is a gorgeous movie with an impeccable eye for detail. And it is absolutely hilarious from start to finish. Like, 100% pure hilarity oh my God, do I love this film, and I really don't have any meaningful critiques about it. Yeah, well, he, um, Mel Brooks actually told his cinematographer, like, don't shoot it like a Frankenstein movie. Shoot it like an exaggerated Frankenstein movie. Right. Like, I want it bigger. And, yeah, there's no real problems with this movie. Yeah. like uh, the um, some of the stuff they used in the lab set was from Frankenstein. Mm. Oh, that's so cool. That, um, uh, originally, uh, Mel Brooks didn't want the putting on the Ritz uh, scene in the movie. 
That doesn't sound like the Mel Brooks I know. No, no. He (laughs) he thought it was too out of place, but Gene Wilder, because I believe Gene Wilder co-wrote this. Yeah. Also, and uh, they were nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for it. Yeah, he 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 fought for it, and uh, Mel Brooks said, all right, all right. We'll have it in the movie. I just wanted to know if you'd fight for it. Because that means you believe in it, and it's going to stay in. And the so they so they and it, it was never a problem again. Yeah, and, um, and that's one of the funniest things ever. Whitney and I, I think there was one time where we almost did that as an entrance on the Schmodown. We were going to be putting on the Ritz. That would have been amazing. I kind of regret not doing that now. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there will be another chance. Ah, someday. Uh, Kenneth Mars as the inspector is oh god amazing. Ugh. The whole the whole like, wooden arm gag is brilliant. To, have you ever actually tried to do that arm acting? I have actually. Very much yeah. inspired by this movie. I wanted to be able to like <sighs> bend my body just perfectly like a robot and it, it's so hard to do. I know. He's it's it really so impeccable. easy. Everything um, about this movie is so impeccable. Yeah. But uh, and a fun little gag. Uh when uh Madeline Kahn who plays uh, uh, Gene Wilder's fiance in the movie comes to the castle and she arrives in her carriage or, and uh, Marty Feldman <laughs> goes like, uh, uh, you take the blonde, I take the one in the turban. And he starts like attacking her uh, like fur <laughs> coat or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't stop laughing in that scene and you can if you look at Gene Wilder's face he is so obviously fighting <laughs> not to smile he's gritting his teeth <laughs> well we actually we need to talk for a moment about Madeline Kahn because uh, she first worked with uh, Mel Brooks in Blazing Saddles where she was mm-hmm. amazing and they worked together multiple times since and I don't think Madeline Kahn, although she is obviously incredibly respected, she's no longer with us, sadly, but she's incredibly respected for her roles in films like Blazing Saddles and Clue, and everyone loves her. I honestly 100% believe that if you put together a list of the 10 greatest comedians in movie history, Madeline Kahn needs to be on there, and she needs to be near the top, because she never hit an unfunny note. Even when she's in a bad movie, like in uh, at Long Last Love, that movie's awful. She's wonderful in it. <laughs> she can't do wrong. Like she doesn't know how to be bad at anything. She's just the most amazing, wonderful actor we've practically ever had. And mm. her and Mel Brooks was a match made in heaven. They really brought the best out in each other. I think. Yeah. Originally, she was going to play Terry Gar's character. Ah. That's what. That's what uh, Mel Brooks offered her, and she said, "No, I wanted to. I want to play the <laughs> the uh, fiance." Mm. And uh, Mel Brooks was confused. It's a it's a smaller part. You sure? You... And then he uh, saw what she was doing with it and, uh, and completely understood. There's no Terry small Gar part of great, Madeline so. Kahn is playing her. There's no small part of Madeline Kahn is playing her. Yeah. But you're right, Terry Gar is actually absolutely radiant in this movie. And I think she brings a kind of naive innocence to the character that Madeline Kahn might not have. 
Whitney, any thoughts about Young Frankenstein before we move on? Uh, it, it's uh, it's one of those comedies like uh, this one is often listed alongside something like uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, these these films that are really latched onto by uh, comedy nerds, which is to say, it, it's the kind of screenplay you want to repeat. Uh, it's it's what they call quotable, although I, I don't think that's like a, a measurable quality films really have. Just some films manage to get under people's skin, become cult comedies that uh, like to be repeated. And as such, I think, although it's really, really brilliant, I can see why somebody might be a little tired of Young Frankenstein by now. Uh, it's sort of fallen into a certain kind of camp of teetering on being overplayed. I, I love How it. How dare you? And I, th- <laughs> I, well, I, think the, I think the reason it has managed to persist, though, is because, uh, Sam, you said that uh, they were encouraged to film like a, a really exaggerated version of Frankenstein, but I'm not sure if that element still tracks to modern audiences. It looks like a 1930s universal monster film. Indeed, they filmed on the same sets as Bride of Frankenstein. So that quality to it Mm. is actually something that keeps it feeling kind of timeless and I think might prevent it from ever feeling like it was completely overplayed. Now, if you've ever seen the stage musical of it, Uh, then you're definitely... You have or you haven't, William? I have. Sorry, I have not. He has. I have not. Okay. Um, that's not a good stage musical. Ah. <laughs> I like it's, it. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's not nearly as charming as the producers. I think they were really stretching with something like Young Frankenstein. Uh, there's, you, If you remember the bit in the movie where uh, Gene Wilder cr- crawls up onto the, uh, the horse and cart and he sees Terry Gar in the hay, and she says, would you like to have a roll in the hay? And she kind of has this sing-songy roll in the hay as she rolls in the hay. It's a funny moment. It's sweet, charming, a little bit naughty. Uh, Mm -hmm. That one moment is expanded into an entire musical number in the stage production. Oh, that feels a little off. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah, they're like really kind of padding it out. And then at the very end of the musical, they say, join us again when we do Blazing Saddles. And you know what? never actually did that one because the Young Frankenstein musical, from what I understand, was not a big success. Uh, so you're walking out of the, the Young Frankenstein musical. You realize that they're, they've stretched this nearly to the breaking point. And luckily, when you go back, it's quietness. It's dead on timing. And it's sort of timeless filmmaking qualities. Keep it alive. Well, uh, Whitney, while we have uh, uh, you in control of the conversation, why don't you walk us into 1976's Silent Movie? Uh, Silent Movie. This is this is a bizarre film. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's, it's about a, a film director who wants to make his big comeback. He's, he's fallen out of, of Hollywood's uh, good graces, and he wants to make, an, uh, make his big comeback making a silent movie uh, in the present day. And what what a foolish idea that would be. And the silent movie is itself a silent movie. And they use all of the dialogue and intertitles. They play with some silent movie forms, but it doesn't look or feel like a silent movie from the 1920s. 
the only line of dialogue belongs to, funnily enough, Marcel Marceau. That's kind of the most notable thing about the movie, uh, including um, just its wonderful cast, because uh, Mel Brooks has reassembled a lot of his key players, like Dom DeLuise and Marty Feldman. And uh, Bernadette Peters plays the female lead in this one, which is great. And she gets multiple um, musical numbers, which is hilarious in a silent film. Um, yeah, yeah. The plot of the movie is actually really, really loose and kind of shabby. And the whole thing is the only way he can convince uh, the producer to make a new silent movie is if he promises to get all the biggest stars in Hollywood. And the majority of the film is structured around vignettes in which uh, Mel Brooks and his lackeys, Marty Feldman and Dom DeLuise find a movie star and then get in some kind of wacky <coughs> bit of business with them. And then at the end of the wacky skit, the movie star agrees to be in the movie and the movie stars who appear in the film, uh, include Burt Reynolds, uh, Paul Newman, James Caan and Bancroft. And I know, I know she was married to Mel Brooks, but in my head, every time I see Anne Bancroft in a Mel Brooks movie, I'm like, wow, how did she get Anne Bancroft in this movie? <laughs> um, one of my favorite Eliza Minnelli has this really hilarious yeah. bit where she's just trying to eat her lunch while all of those guys are like flopping around in suits of armor all over her salad and it's hilarious um, and then eventually these like evil guys who are trying to steal the studio and want to make sure the movie isn't a hit uh, assign Bernadette Peters to seduce Mel Brooks and prevent him uh, from finishing the film and it all ends in a big raucous chase um it's one of those movies that is consistently funny without ever being, like, iconic. Like, I laugh every time I watch this movie. It's full of good jokes. Many of them are weird and surreal. Like, there's this whole bit where James Caan is in his trailer, but, like, one of the springs is broken on his trailer, and it's, like, rocking back and forth like a ship at sea. And every single thing they do, like, ends up, like, throwing them all across the room. And that's so weird and absolutely funny. But, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just because the whole movie feels like little more than setups for gags than it does an actual story being told. And I think that's one of the reasons why Silent Movie mm. never quite makes it into my upper echelon Mel Brooks favorites. I don't know. I really like this movie. Um, you forgot Sid Caesar as the uh, mm. um, uh, movie executive. Uh, yeah, and I like recent. I rewatched this movie uh, just after uh, Disney bought Fox. So the plot of this movie <laughs> made um, forty years ago, or forty four years forty four years ago now. Yeah, uh, was weirdly prescient. Yeah, it's about an evil corporation <laughs> trying to buy Fox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think at the time it was a commentary oh, yeah, huh. about the buyout of Paramount, I want to say. Uh, that sounds about right, yeah. And certainly there's um, been plenty of problems where studios have, are they're beholden to their investors. And if they don't make enough movie, movie studios will get bought and sold. It happened to United Artists, it happened to MGM, these things happen. Yeah, and I really like how um, Burt Reynolds is the first to like, big star they try to get mm -hmm. and if you pay attention the way it's shot it looks like uh that thing where they tell you it's burt reynolds but it's not actually because they shoot him from behind all the time 
Yeah. But then they actually <laughs> show Burt Reynolds. And I. There's a lot of subtle know, jokes I, like that. Yeah. Like where it's like you, you, there. There's a lot of really obvious jokes as well, but like if you pay attention to a lot of Mel Brooks's stuff, there's a lot of jokes that are actually like weirdly subtle. And there's a there's a scene in um, uh, there's a scene in High Anxiety where who who is that one fashion designer who has that one very particular like handbag that they sell with that like brown kind of pattern design? Louis Vuitton. There's a Louis Vuitton uh, and Louis Vuitton. Uh, uh, Madeline Kahn shows up and she's got a Louis Vuitton bag but then she drives up in a Louis Vuitton car and it's got the same pattern on it and when she gets out she's wearing a Louis Vuitton <laughs> outfit like everything is that pattern and then later on when she goes to bed her teddy bear is wearing Louis Vuitton pajamas and I had no that joke went completely over my head when I was a kid and I'm watching it now, and it's hilarious, but it's like they don't really call attention to it. It's just this weird side gag off to the corner, and it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, Silent I, I Movie think, doesn't get enough credit, I think. It is very, very yeah. funny, and I think people should see – more people should and, see it. And, of course, some of the jokes don't age super well. Yeah. Well, there's like, that gay the, panic joke I, I mentioned. Yeah, where, like the pregnancy yeah. joke at the beginning of the movie where – a pregnant lady gets in their car and it like, and she's so heavy. The back of the car lifts up the front of the car, and uh. they're doing driving away on a wheelie. Yeah, there's a couple <laughs> of those. They're they're easy jokes. They're lazy jokes, mm-hmm. and they're not very good jokes. They're they're weirdly, um, I, they're not mean, but they've got a spirit of meanness to them. And I and mm-hmm. I'm not a. They're not funny to me. They're just not. But mm-hmm. overall. It's more hits than misses, and yep. it's a really fun movie that more people should watch, I think. Yeah. Uh, moving oh, on to... Ni- oh, sorry, I, I think... Oh, just one more thing on Silent Movie. Um, you, you look at something like uh, the producers, you can see that he has... Uh, Mel Brooks has an affection for theater. You see Blazing Saddles. You He may not have affection for Westerns, but he has sort of a, a knowledge of the way they work. Same with horror films and Young Frankenstein. I don't get that same sense from Silent Movie. I don't think he's maybe a Silent Movie guy. Mm. Like he's making fun of the fact that there's no sound in this movie, but it doesn't it doesn't have like the story or the feel of of an actual Silent Movie. Yeah, he like doesn't he's not, he's not doing the melodrama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that that's what I mean. He's yeah. not like playing it operatic the way a Silent Movie might. You and know, I think if he had maybe shot in black and white again, or if he had made a, a little bit more of a conscious effort to make the drama feel a little bit more like a silent movie, then this would be talked about more. I think you're right. I was watching this movie uh, with uh, Michelle earlier today, actually. We were, we were watching it because we hadn't watched it in a long time. Um, and there's the bit where Mel Brooks is pitching to Sid Caesar that he wants to make a silent movie. And he says, I got a hit movie and it's going to make us a ton of money. And Caesar's like, wait, what's the genre? Is it a Western, a romance? And then Mel Brooks says, it's a silent movie. And our first reaction was, okay, but what genre? Silent movie is a medium, not a genre. And Sid Caesar immediately assumes it's a slapstick comedy. And I think that is what silent movie feels more like. It feels like the comedy shorts of like Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd, where the whole movie is built around these like five to 10 minute 
gag sequences. But you're right, as an actual feature silent film, it's not very good. But there, I think there is some inspiration here. This is one really inspired bit where the bad guy is like in a bathroom and his valet is trying to put on his coat. And they end up putting on the coat like wrong like ten different ways. And then the bad guy somehow puts oh, on the yeah, valet's yeah. coat and then they get in the wrong <laughs> arms. And that right there is like, that's a gag that like Charlie Chaplin would have done. That is a perfectly yeah, that, that's great a sound party gag. Bit, yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, so I'm, I'm with you. I do think there's something holding this movie back, but it is really good. And I do think it's better than 1977's High Anxiety, a movie I really want to love. And I like just fine, but it's another one that never really makes me laugh that much. Uh, this one is a spoof of suspense films, mostly Alfred Hitchcock movies, uh, a few others in there as well. Um, and uh, on top of it all, Mel Brooks actually uh, spitballed some of the gags in this movie with Alfred Hitchcock. And there is a gag in the movie where Mel Brooks is just sitting on a bench and he looks at the jungle gym behind him at a park and it's covered in pigeons. And then the pigeons all start pooping on him. And apparently that was Alfred Hitchcock's idea. Uh, so make of that what you will. But the, but the plot is he's a psychologist who suffers from vertigo, but they call it high anxiety because he has anxiety about heights. And he gets swept up into a big web of intrigue involving mistaken identity and murder and a conspiracy to keep people locked away in a mental institution, uh, even though they are perfectly sane. Winning? Yeah, th this is a this is a comedy that oh, it only makes sense at all if you are intimately familiar with Alfred Hitchcock's uh, pretty much most of his mainstream filmography. Uh, if you don't know anything about Hitchcock or the way thrillers work, this film doesn't this film doesn't work at all. Uh, it, it's almost the opposite of Silent Movie, where Silent Movie doesn't feel enough like. A silent movie high anxiety feels too much like a hitchcock film there's you know a lot of cute jokes that only play if you know what they're referencing yeah there's a lot of weird uh, camera angles and they're very specific shout outs yeah. very specific films and yet going back to something sam said about young frankenstein and how mel brooks i think captured that very particular feel of universal horror movies by amplifying them to the point where they're unmistakable. Mm. I think Mel Brooks may have miscalculated by deciding to make this movie like one of Hitchcock's uh, color films, which was like the last 20, 25 years of his career, because ultimately high anxiety, even though he's trying to copy a lot of the camera angles and a lot of the plot points, um, it ends up actually feeling less Hitchcockian and more like a really brightly lit, broad comedy. It doesn't really read Hitchcock except in those very particular moments where he's doing those shots. And I think that kind of keeps the movie feeling just a little bit too much like a farce and not enough like an actual Hitchcock movie. Sam, what do you think? Um, well... I'm not super familiar with, I still like it, but I'm not super familiar with um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies. I've seen not enough of them, kind of like da David Lean, haven't seen enough of them. Okay. I only have so much time. Uh, but um, there are a lot of jokes I 
I probably like half understand the what a dramatic airport uh, joke. <laughs> or um, uh, Cloris Leachman as the <laughs> as um, Nurse Diesel. Uh, yeah, the nurse at the at the Psychoneurotic Institute for the very very nervous. Mm-hmm. That's a schmodown question. I, I was thinking it. that when I was rewatching this. I'm like, I need to write this one down. This will come up. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like it's weird because I feel like Nurse Diesel is probably a reference to Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. But she's also very much in line with a lot of the Hitchcockian sort of supporting women characters who are kind of sinister. In particular, I'm thinking something like Rebecca. Um, but, um, yeah, that's another one where maybe she's not quite in place. I don't know. Um, anyway, I actually don't have a lot to say about this one. It's, it's funny in fits and starts. There are really, really great bits in here, but I think there is a reason why this is not one of his best known movies. And I think it's just because it, it's kind of too specific in some ways. And I also just don't think it works particularly well as a standalone film. I think if you love Hitchcock movies, you'll have affection for it. And if you don't, and if you don't know him real, real well, it might just fall kind of flat for the most part. So it's kind of like Vertigo. <laughs> well, yeah, actually. It's <laughs> um, Sam, why don't you take us into the History of the World Part 1? Well, uh, History of the World Part 1 is uh, his spoof of historical epics and uh, goes through different periods of history uh, telling the history of the world. And uh, I forget what order it goes in. I think, well, um, well, I know the narrator is Orson Welles. Yes, because that was a Shmodown uh, question. Yes. Well, I knew that before. I knew. So did I. <laughs> I love how people are just like, that's the hardest question ever. I'm like, no, it's not. Snyder. Yeah, just watch the movie. What the hell? Um, But yeah, no, it goes through, he he goes through the history of the world, and a lot of them are really quick vignettes to like kind of breeze through caveman times. But he really, he really lingers on the Roman era. He likes, he's he's, uh, playing with a lot of uh, great Roman epics like Cleopatra or the great Peplum films. Um, and then he spends most of the second half focusing on the French Revolution. Uh, and dang it, this movie's funny. I feel like this movie shouldn't work because it's just kind of another one that's just a bunch of sketches for the most part. But it makes me laugh so hard every time I watch this. Like, I honestly think that on the, the list of the funniest jokes in movie history, the gag where Mel Brooks as Moses comes down from the mountain <laughs> with three tablets and says, the Lord has given us these 15, smash, 10, 10 commandments. That may be the best joke in movie history. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. There, there's not, it's just that. That's the whole <laughs> yeah, that's but the it, whole thing. And but it just, implies so much. It explains yeah, where the universe so has gone awry. It explains yeah. it's man's uh, hubris. And, it's just, and, uh, I like to see it this turns movie out as a like a rated R movie for thirteen year olds. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of this movie went over yeah. my head. 
a yeah. lot of this movie went over my head. Yeah. There's a oh. lot of like really oh, dumb jokes that I laughed at when I was 13. <laughs> like, like uh, the soldiers are crawling in the street, or the streets are crawling with soldiers, and they're literally. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very immature film, but made by mature people who know what's funny. Whitney, you were trying to say something earlier. Oh well, I was going to point out that that the Moses joke. It turns out that that's like a bookend joke because Moses appears later in the movie during the uh, the ancient Roman times. Some for some reason Moses is also there. Yeah, that was uh, a weird gag. And he's standing by a he's standing by a lake that they need to cross through oh, yeah. and he says oh no how are we going to they and they say in the chariot how are we going to get across and moses raises his arms and the the water parts it's of course the 10 commandments feature from the universal backlot they didn't have to spend any money on that effect they just went there and filmed it uh, and then they pass through and they say thank you very much to moses and then Moses turns, and we see a guy holding a knife in his back and saying, yeah, keep your hands up. And he takes Moses' wallet and runs away. <laughs> oh. so Moses was being mugged. He just happened to, to yeah. part the Red Sea. Oh, another um, perfect gag from uh, this movie. Yeah, Sorry, lo- you got it. No, you got it. Um, Sorry, we don't uh, well, usually record uh, over and, the phone. It's you'll... a little muddled sometimes. Sorry about that. Whitney, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's... There's delays. I apologize for that. But uh, to address the you know gags you don't get when you're 13. Yeah, this is one I saw on TV when I was like maybe 11. So I got to see the the censored version, which you know is is really unsatisfying. But then I eventually rented the R-rated version, and I I watched the really filthy version with my mom in the room, which was really awkward. But it gave her a wonderful opportunity to introduce me. To Oedipus Rex. Uh, hey. There's an Oedipus joke in this movie <laughs> where uh, Gregory Hines, uh, I, I don't know, can I cuss on this podcast? Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, there, there's a bit where uh, a blind guy is wandering around with a stick bonking his head on stuff and he's saying, I, I mean, that's that's a tasteless just blind joke, but he's yelling, give to Oedipus. Oh, so this is what happened to Oedipus Rex. He pulled his eyes out. And then... Uh, Gregory Hines walks by and he, he gives Oedipus a high five and he says, hey, how you doing there, motherfucker? And uh, <laughs> my, mom, my, mom had to ex- my mom had to explain that joke to me and I think she was kind of happy that she got to tell me about Oedipus. Yeah, this is the most classy motherfucker joke we could possibly have yeah, told yeah. In, this, in this very silly film. The other jokes <laughs> that I remember all the time and I will never forget from History of the World Part 1 is uh, when they're in the French Revolution and there's this big panning shot over the peasantry and it's a whole bunch of people in carts. It's like, rotten fruit! I got rotten fruit for sale! Moldy cabbage! I got moldy cabbage for sale! And there's a cart with nothing in it. Nothing! I got nothing for sale! Genius. Absolute genius. Oh, oh, small joke. uh, My mom also got me to... Hmm. Is when they're going Sorry, to Judea, uh, they're and their boat ju- to Judea, Judea uh, says "El Al" on the sails. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that's still over my head. What did I? What did uh, I that uh, El Al is the Israeli airline. Oh, okay. All right, all right. That's I don't know a lot about that. Oh, so, okay. I'm glad I. I'm glad I know that now. Yeah, we, we have. 
I, I do like the bit where uh, Madame Defarge, played by Cloris Leachman, brilliant, brilliantly Cloris Leachman, uh, is uh, uh, complaining in the French Revolution that they don't they don't have anything. They have no money. They have no dignity. They don't even have a language. Just a stupid accent. <laughs> and another guy steps forward and says, "Wait a minute. She's right. We all talk talk like Maurice Chevalier." <laughs> Um, that's actually a good, that's actually a good segue because, uh, Mel Brooks actually had like a really like kind of fallow period as a director where he didn't direct anything between 1981 and 1987. And he was very busy in this time. One of the things he did was that To Be or Not To Be, uh, remake with Anne Bancroft. And, uh, there's a brilliant joke at the beginning of that where all of the characters are actually speaking Polish for about mm-hmm. a minute and a half. And then there's suddenly an announcer that's just like, uh, for for the sake of the audience's sanity, the rest of this movie will be translated into English. And everyone's like, oh, okay, fair enough. And yeah, they see, sing uh, Sweet Georgia <laughs> Brown in Polish. That's amazing. Um, but also in this time, Mel Brooks, uh, sometimes on the book, sometimes leaving his name off the project, directed some really critically acclaimed films that weren't comedies. Uh, uh, sorry, produced. Sorry, yes. He produced some really critically acclaimed films that weren't comedies. And without Mel Brooks, we might not have had David Lynch's second feature, The Elephant Man, uh, nor would we have had David Cronenberg's amazing remake of The Fly. And in fact, Mel Brooks has been credited with the line from The Fly, be afraid, be very afraid. Because apparently the original line was just, don't be afraid. And Mel Brooks was reading, it's like, no, she should be afraid. She should be very afraid. And so <laughs> they left that in. Uh, but he's he's a, not just a great comedic filmmaker. He's a patron of the arts as well. And he knew talent when he saw it, even if it wasn't in his genre. And I just I have a lot of respect for him for that. Yeah, and um, he's the uh, person that gave the okay to um, David Lynch to shoot The Elephant Man in black and white. Oh, I didn't know that one. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Winnie? From what from what I understand, uh, because he was already associated with comedy, he actually kind of he wanted to produce it, but he didn't want his name on it. He didn't want Mel Brooks presents to be at the top of something like The Elephant Man. Right. Uh, so he actually had. That's why he called his uh, his production company Brooks Films for that one, because Brooks Films doesn't necessarily sound like it's Mel Brooks, uh, and that he was able to be well known for these broad farcical comedies and yet still have an abiding interest in really bizarre outsider filmmakers like David Lynch and David Cronenberg uh, shows that he actually had a lot of depth. And, uh, you know, you think of something like that and something like the 12 chairs suddenly works a little bit better uh, in my eye. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, well, in any case, 1987 rolls around and Mel Brooks makes uh some might argue his last great comedy, uh, which would be the Star Wars parody Spaceballs, uh, starring, amongst others, uh, Bill Pullman, John Candy, Daphne Zuniga, uh, Rick Moranis. And this is a movie that I feel like, for budgetary reasons, you know, he wasn't fully able to capture the Star Wars feel. It's not a cheap movie. It looks pretty good, but it just doesn't, like, you'd never, you'd never mistake it for a real Star Wars movie. Um, but it's also a movie that is extremely funny 
And yeah. I, there's so many bits. There's a lot of bits that are just kind of obvious, like, ha ha, the lightsabers are kind of like they're wieners. But there's also a lot of bits that are weirdly elaborate. And the whole thing where the bad guys don't know what to do next, so they decide to get the VHS copy of Spaceballs and watch it, and they end up getting stuck on the scene they're currently in, is one of the most inspired gags Mel Brooks ever did. Yeah, and they scan past all the previous Mel Brooks movies to uh, get to... It's, it's, it's funny that you say it doesn't look like Star Wars, because ILM did the special effects for this movie. Oh, well, I'm not saying the visual effects are mm-hmm. bad. I'm just saying yeah. like it's one of those ones where it doesn't feel like Star Wars, but heightened. It feels like a slightly farcical yeah. version of Star Wars. But you're right. The visual effects in the movie are actually pretty good, and the makeup effects are pretty good. I'm a huge fan of Pizza the Hut. I thought that was mm-hmm. the... F- when I was like five, when I first saw Spaceballs, I thought that was the funniest gag anyone mm-hmm. had ever done. It's like Jabba the Hutt, but he's a pizza. And I thought yeah. Pizza the Hut looked delicious. I would have been good friends <laughs> with Pizza the Hut and just occasionally picked pieces off of them and he ate mm-hmm. them. Um, the poor person I, that I was, was in big... that suit. Yeah, oh, can you imagine? Yeah, no, that was actual cheese oh, that was on no. there and they had to keep it hot mm-hmm. and melted on. Oh, that's so gross. I didn't know yeah. that, that was real cheese. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Oh my god. The person in there uh, was cooking. Oof, I'll bet. Um, oh my god. Oh, a Joan Rivers I, as Dot. She's yeah. hilarious. But uh, but that was a uh, voiceover. Yeah. The uh, the person that was in the suit was um, a French mime. Who I forget the name of. Uh, right, but she. But she is the one who had to be outside in that. Yeah. Suit in the desert and ugh, the desert. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that must have been rough. Uh, the alien uh, gag with John Hurd, who had previously had a cameo <laughs> in History of the World Part One as Jesus Christ. Uh, that right there, that John Hurt was game. So so much credit to John Hurt for spoofing what, what was already an iconic scene and turning it into an equally iconic comedy gag. When he goes, "Oh no, not again!" and you realize that Spaceballs is canon. And you realize that he got better <laughs> after Alien. And it just... It, I don't know. That always amused the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, and then um, he does the Michigan J-Frog. <laughs> yeah. The, the uh, Alien. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And then, it lands, and, then it, and then it evolves yet again to... Wait a minute. What did he order? I had the special. Give me the soup. Or vice versa. <laughs> um, and then they leave without eating anyway. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so darn funny. It's, it's, it's one of those movies where like you can feel Mel Brooks starting to get like a little less inspired with some of the gags, but some of them are so damn good you don't care. Yeah. And I don't know. I, it's, I have a lot of but affection I for it. like this is one where he doesn't have a lot of personal connection with the source material. Yeah, I think that's what I'm getting at, where it feels like Star and Wars came in after so, his time. Because a lot of the comedy doesn't come from, like, specific parodies of the genre or the set of movies that it's in. Mm-hmm. It's more of, like, we took what we kind of saw in Star Wars, and then just kind of made it goofy. Like, I like that he took a moment to, to spoof 
how it became a marketing bonanza. I feel like that part feels really genuine. But a lot of it is just other stuff that he clearly liked. Like, he clearly loves Planet of the Apes. He clearly loves <laughs> It Happened One Night. He stole the whole structure from it. I, mm. That's just hilarious to me. Whitney, you've been a little well, quiet on Spaceballs. Oh. Sorry. Oh, I'm, well, I mean, I, I don't want to dominate Spaceballs because Spaceballs was one of, one of my favorite movies when it came out. Uh, I, I feel like watching it as an adult, you see Spaceballs as something incredibly juvenile. They're, all of the gags are the easiest possible gags. All of the Star Wars references are really kind of surface level references. Uh, he is not deconstructing Star Wars in any kind of meaningful way. That said, the meta humor has never been more on point. I still laugh at this damn movie. I remember uh, reading Roger Ebert's review of Spaceballs when I was catching up with Roger Ebert uh, years after he had written it. And he uh, he pointed out that Mel Brooks is, even in as late as 1987, is still writing comedy for 1950s TV. Yeah. And I think, and, and Roger, Roger Ebert, mentioned that as a criticism i think that's just kind of descriptive i think mel brooks kind of fell into a certain kind of stride and by the time we got to the late 80s that really broad silly uh spoofery uh where it he takes a, a saga and just sort of lays his own kind of dumb gags on top of it was just something that was carrying him along for a long time and by the 80s wasn't uh, playing quite as well for an adult audience anymore. You'll find a lot, lot of people who really love Spaceballs. I love Spaceballs, but you'll also find that they're all under a certain age. Mm -hmm. uh, there's You're not going to find a lot of you know, older people who are around when Star Wars first got big when they were adults who are also really into Spaceballs because Star Wars was already getting spoofed every which way. We had, you know, the, the Miko Star Wars Cantina disco hit. Uh, Mad Magazine was just savaging every film as they came along. 1987 seemed like way too late in the game to have a, a spoof of Star Wars. I feel like a lot of kids in the 80s generation probably had Spaceballs be their first Mel Brooks movie. Yeah. And yeah I think that's yeah. significant. And I think, I think it's a good point because... But back to that point you had about like how Mel Brooks always made jokes like he was in 1950s television. I like him that way. Like I look at how <laughs> I look at how a lot of comedy movies are structured nowadays, and there are definite exceptions to this. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of them feel so loose and shabby, and just based off of uh, you know improv or hoping a bit comes together. And you realize that although a lot of Mel Brooks's comedies are based off of these really obvious gags and setups and punchlines, all of those jokes are workshopped. All of those jokes are set up. They've, they've been set up. They've been followed through on. They've worked out the choreography and they hit the punchline hard. The work that went into those jokes makes the jokes funnier. It's Funny that people went to so much effort just to get to a really silly punchline. Whereas <laughs> seeing movies that don't seem to put forth a lot of effort just to get to some weird ad-libbed insult, I feel like that loses its charm after a while. But seeing people really work hard to be clowns is something that never stops being impressive to me. Yeah. 
And uh, just a quick, uh, the merchandising jokes of all the Spaceballs merchandise is uh, is from when uh, Mel Brooks asked uh, George Lucas, hey, we're doing a Star Wars parody. Uh, can, can we have your blessing to do this? He said, okay, but you can't make merchandise for it. Because if you make merchandise for it, it'll look too much like the Star Wars merchandise. So he oh, wrote George. into the movie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, so he made it a joke to have a bunch of Spaceballs merchandise in the movie. And if you look carefully at Yogurt's um, merch stand, like the Spaceballs the lunchbox is just a Transformers lunchbox with Spaceballs on it. I actually did. I had, I had that lunchbox. I had the actual oh, lunchbox. Funny. It's amazing. I've always th- that actually explains so much because I always wondered why there wasn't Spaceballs merchandise. Like I probably wouldn't have done amazing, but they could have sold some action figures off of that. I would have bought them. That's amazing. Well, Thank they you made so much those, that. and they even made those action figures that uh, Rick Moranis, who plays Dark Helmet, uh, was playing with in one scene. And evidently, Rick Moranis ad libbed that entire scene. They just said, "Play with the dolls," and he made up that entire scenario. It's actually weird that because Rick Moranis, his like film career didn't really get started until the '80s, and this was kind of like maybe his only chance to work with Mel Brooks. They were a match made in heaven. Rick Moranis is hilarious <laughs> in this movie. Like, you're really good together. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's funny in this. <laughs> that's true. Um, is, is anyone funny in Life Stinks? Anyone? Oh, um... Ooh. See, I don't think they are. I don't know. I feel like they're trying. Okay. Life Stinks is sort of the sign that... The um, lawyers Mel- almost... Mm. But they're just dumb lawyer jokes. Yeah, but when when he take us into life stinks. Oh, uh, it, it's uh, life stinks. Mel Brooks plays this. Um, he's essentially playing the the Scrooge character. He's playing Ebenezer Scrooge more mm. or less. Uh, he and he's a slum lord, and he wants to uh, raise a slum and you know build Trump Tower, and. Um, who it's I think it's it's, Jeffrey it's not Tambor. Don Deluise, it's um Jeffrey it's, Tambor. Yeah, Jeffrey uh, Tambor owns half the land and they agree that Mel Brooks will tr- because he's never known he's always known privilege. And he actually mm-hmm. has a line that's very suspiciously similar to Trump when Jeffrey Tambor's like you've been rich your whole life. Ah, my dad gave me a small loan of 10 million and they're like, "Whoa." <laughs> Weird. <laughs> um but they, they make a deal well, that, that he 5 will million. That's nothing. He will mm. he will uh, uh, give away all of his money and he will live as a homeless person in Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles for one month. And if he can do that, Jeffrey Tambor will sell him his half of the land. Um, and of course, it's very difficult. And this sounds like uh, the premise for like a Frank Capra movie. Well, it sounds like Sullivan's Travels, which are uh, Preston Sturges' yeah, joint, yeah. which is about a filmmaker who agrees to... Uh, impersonate a homeless person so that they can know what it's like to be homeless so that they can make a movie about being homeless, which is kind of in a weird way what Mel Brooks is doing because he's also making the movie. Mm-hmm. If only it were funny or had jokes. Well, he's not trying to tell a really emotional story. He's trying to tell another really broad comedy. 
it's not a spoof. Like it doesn't break the fourth wall, which is rare for him. But it, I think he's really going for something kind of silly. And what he's trying to do is make light of homelessness. And that is a bad taste. Yeah, yeah it's like he's trying to give the homeless characters in the film dignity, but he's also using them as fodder for comedy. And man, it it doesn't work. It just doesn't. It's yeah. not. It's not funny, even when it's he's trying. I think I might have laughed out loud once the whole movie, and I couldn't tell you what. It I, was. I think I think there was a chuckle. I think I I, I got a chuckle. Yeah. It's something. Yeah. Like, I just feel mm-hmm. like he's, it's like he's trying to do a method picture, but it's totally eluding him. And I I honestly don't know where exactly this went wrong other than the premise. But even a bad premise could have good jokes in it. And this doesn't have any. It's like he's, he doesn't want to turn it into a cartoon because he understands that it's a serious issue. But as a result, it never gets funny and i was watching this and was watching this with michelle and she pointed out that charlie chaplin knew how to make this material work where there was always a melancholy to the fact that the tramp was a tramp but he also found a weird slight freedom in being outside of society and that was able to give him these brief moments of heroism and fantasy and I, I don't. I, it's weird for me that Brooks didn't like pull from that well because I think maybe he could have tapped that. I mean, he'd made silent movie. He clearly knows silent comedies. Like it feels like that would have been the sweet spot, and that maybe could have made this movie work. But you know, it's just kind of dry. Oh no! I remember my mm. chuckle. Uh, uh, when uh, him and um, I forget her name. I think she played Miss Scarlet in Leslie uh, Ann Warren. Yes, thank you. Uh, are about to have sex in a clothes factory, <laughs> a warehouse, or like a laundry or something. Clothing yeah. in bricks. I don't know. And like he, like she's trying to take her clothes off, but she just he keeps opening up like more and more jackets. Over. Yeah, she's 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 like, got many layers. Yes, many layers. That uh, I I got a chuckle. That, and I think that was the only. Time. I was I was briefly amused at the end when Mel Brooks and Jeffrey Tambor both get in construction equipment and they have like a kaiju fight with like giant yeah. like steam shovels. Mm-hmm. That was at least kind of inspired. Like there was actually like some creativity that went into that. But man, this yeah, this there were things work. happening in that scene. Yeah, there were. <laughs> That is a great way to describe it. There were <laughs> things happening. And I'm ready to move on. Uh, uh, Sam, why don't you uh, talk us into Robin Hood Men in Tights? Um, well, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights is... Uh, well, I think uh, his last good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people may disagree. But uh, it's his Robin Hood spoof uh, primarily the uh, Errol Flynn Robin Hood and and well that's what he the movie is basing its Robin Hood I, off of I think I think it's directly spoofing Robin Hood Prince of Thieves 
which was people forget mm. that movie was huge. Yeah, that was, was one of the highest grossing films of the year. That was a giant film, and you know what? It's actually not that bad. Like I know it gets a lot of crap because Kevin Costner doesn't do an accent, and you're they right. They made fun of it in the movie. They made fun <laughs> of it in the movie, and you know what? You're right. That is stupid, and it's weird that he doesn't have an accent. Other than that, it's actually a pretty good film. Like it's exciting. It's got a great villain. The production design is amazing. Like there's good stuff mm-hmm. there. So this was actually like really timely, and it's also the film where I feel like finally, once and for all. He gave up on trying to make it look like a real movie because this movie <laughs> looks this movie looks cheap. This movie looks like yeah. it was done on backlots and yeah. on like in like in like you know arboretums or whatever and like really fake sets. And that's not the end of the world. What? It's full what? of jokes. What? Many of them are recycled, but I still laugh yeah. a lot at this film. This film has yeah. a lot of good jokes in it. Uh, Blinken is uh, the the blind jokes are still a bit. Mm. They've always been a little crap. I'll give you that. Yeah, but it's but... not too much of the movie. Um, and this, this is a movie I actually even still quote kind of a yeah. lot. You know, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Whitney, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I I enjoy it, even though almost every single gag has previously been used in a Mel Brooks movie. Like there, there's no no uh, life or creativity in the screenplay. It is just uh, Mel Brooks bringing what energy he can, and a really brilliant cast really elevating it. I think Carrie Elwes is spot on. Oh, he's really really because he's he's charming and he's funny. I think even Amy Yazbek is really funny in this movie. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, a, a really wonderful supporting cast. Who is it? Uh, um, uh, oh, not Richard E. Grant. Who plays the sheriff of Nottingham? Oh, uh, the it's, actor. it's the guy from. Uh, it's the guy from Mantis. It is the he guy was guy in from Mantis. Mantis. That was driving me nuts. Guy yeah. from Mantis. Uh, <laughs> trying to see if that comes up. Guy from uh, Roger Larry Reese. Platt is who came up. He was no, a U.S. Ro- general. Roger what? Rees is the name of the actor. Roger okay. Rees. Okay. Uh, and Roger Rees, I think, is is hilarious in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and and they're really... The problem is, this is the 90s. Films are being shot a little differently. Comedy has really evolved. And Mel Brooks is still trying not just the same shtick, but the same jokes yeah. in the, the early 90s. And as such, when people are playing up really broad... It feels weirdly out of place, and when he's trying to be hip, it feels a little pathetic. Uh, like you know, the opening rap number, for instance, is clearly oh. like it's it's witty songwriting mm-hmm. because Mel Brooks is a good songwriter, but it's not a great rap song. Oh, no. uh, and you know, the contemporary references feel like they're a few years out of date. Mm. Uh, all of that said. Ed, I, I still enjoy watching this movie. I still, yeah. because I'm a sucker for that corny humor, I think it still plays to somebody like me who likes corny humor. I feel like every single person in the cast is really excited to be making the movie, and they're really giving it their all, even if they only have really stupid jokes. And I think that yeah, really yeah. helps elevate the movie above a, a, a certain air of laziness to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it again. Carrie Elwes is amazing in this. So funny. Like, like when like, I always think of the 
uh, scene when they're um, Robin Hood and uh, oh god, Maid Marian, <laughs> Maid Marian are about to kiss, and she, he's like, oh, he was about, he was going to trick you into uh, entering an archery contest, and as soon as she says that, Carrie Elwes's head dodges out of her way. Out of it, away. <laughs> An archery contest. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not a great joke, but he's so committed to the role. He's so committed to that joke that the joke becomes great. Yeah, and that's what I love about that movie. And you're right; it, it, it's 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 sloppy, it's repetitive, but it's also funny, and I'm fine with that. Um. Which leads us into well, the last I, film that Mel Brooks ever directed. But Whitney, last thoughts on Robin Hood? Oh uh, well, just remember all of these comments we're making when we talk about Dracula, because they they all <laughs> apply to Dracula as well. Well, take us into Dracula, Dead and Loving It, because I know you're one of the few people who openly defends this film. I I, I like this movie, just not ironically. I just enjoy it. I think it's funny. I'm the one. I'm not even sure Mel Brooks thinks this movie is funny. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people saw this as uh, sort of a, a return to something safe for Mel Brooks because he had previously done Frankenstein, now he's doing Dracula. would have made a lot more sense had, had he made Dracula back in the 70s. Uh, but yeah, it's the mid-90s. He cast Leslie Nielsen, who was... Leslie Nielsen was going through his own spoof renaissance thanks to the success of The, the Naked Gun. Uh, and he was cast in a series of spoof movies, some better than others. Some are pretty good and underrated. I think wrongfully accused is enjoyable. Uh, but it, it was this time where Mel Brooks, who was kind of sauntering down, and Leslie Nielsen was enjoying this kind of final wave of his career, were kind of colliding in this weird way. Uh, and Mel Brooks, once again, writing a spoof of Hammer Horror movies in that 1950s TV mold, all of the actors are saying really, really corny shit as loudly as they possibly can, hoping that something sticks. Now, if you watch the original Todd Browning movie, it's actually really theatrical and melodramatic. And I think that's what Mel Brooks was kind of getting at. And I think it's also why I found myself kind of attached to this movie. Mm. It feels really stagey, as if a, a bunch of repertory players who have performed this on stage a thousand times are now doing it on screen as big as they possibly can. And as such, it does have this oh, kind of clunky theatricality of uh, a really well-meaning community theater troupe putting on a pretty impassioned rendition of a really silly play. What The word you're looking for, I think, is cheap. Um, because that's the thing that I, well, it's that, that's the thing that I get a lot of from Dracula dead and loving it is it feels like there was no money to be had and Mm. we're just trying to put together a Dracula using spit and shoe polish. Um, and I think that's to the film's detriment. I feel like if the film had, you know, maybe money isn't the right word, but more time and more care. I think if it had been filmed in black and white, it really would have been very effective, um, yeah. but you know, they're obviously they're going off of, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francois Coppola film and, uh, more of the hammer stuff. So they're making it colorful, but I feel like that level of like detachment from reality, that slight archness would have helped mm-hmm. this movie because my, my problem with this movie, which I used to think was funny. And then I rewatched it again, not that long ago and I'm no longer 
convinced. Um, oh. Is and, and there's stuff I like in it. Uh, the, the scene where um, Stephen Weber is uh, putting a oh, stake the, through someone's heart, scene. and the, yeah, he keeps yeah, getting yeah. like giant fountains of blood, and Mel Brooks just keeps like patting him on the back, like try it one more time. They're not quite dead. And it turns out that Stephen Weber didn't know how much blood was going to get splattered on him, and so he's really actually getting upset. <laughs> that whole bit is comedy gold. That's really top-tier Mel Brooks, at least that one scene. But so much of the film just feels kind of thrown together. And I feel like if this had had that little out, like the extra layer of care that he had taken with the films that he clearly had a lot of affection for... Um, Dragon mm. Dead Loving It could have elevated itself above that, but as it stands, it just feels kind of sloppy and thrown together. I don't know, Sam, you haven't really chimed in on this one. Uh, yeah, I I saw this for the first time uh, very recently. This is one of the ones I had to watch for the podcast. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to say it's a good movie. <laughs> there, But there are, there is funny stuff in here. Like, I feel like the first, I want to say 15 to 20 minutes, is all physical gags. Hmm. Like, and it's like there's too much uh, physical comedy packed into one where uh, Peter McNichol really plays Renfield. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he, and is pretty much playing... Uh, uh, Janusz from Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> it's the same character. <laughs> but it's uh, brilliant. Yeah. Is but, it? I love his performance. I think he's hilarious in this movie. Okay. I, I, I'm a little on Whitney's side. I really like him in the movie. Fair enough. It, it's a Mel Brooks comedy. He's playing a big goofy character. It's fine. Hmm. Um, uh, the running... A gag with uh, Harvey Corman always uh, uh, giving everyone. His, uh, he wants to give everyone, everyone an animal. animals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that actually funny? I don't know. I did. That kind of fell uh, flat to me. Is people enjoying the anima jokes? Is that a thing? That might be me personally, because my mom, my mom always said uh, when she told uh, her grandmother that she was sick, like. You want me to give you an enema? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no, Grandma. No. So I think that's all. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, that's great. But, that's um, amazing. Uh, I like uh, the joke where just before the whole blood fountain, they go to the crypt and, uh, like, there she is. Uh, he goes, is she dead? Like, no, she is Nosferatu. He goes, she's Italian? It's good clean humor right there. We yeah, can that, appreciate that. that. Funny joke. Funny yeah. joke. Yes. 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 Well Funny. done. Well done, everybody. Mm-hmm. You did the gun. Uh, yeah, no, no matter what anybody has to say about this scene, we all agree that the staking scene is just comedy gold. Yes. yes. Easily and, and this, the best part of the film, yeah. Uh, that and also uh, the scene where Renfield is eating bugs off of the table <laughs> in front of Harvey Corman. Yeah, like th- just the timing of that scene is really brilliant. You, 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 you ate a bug. You put a bug in your mouth. I did not. Like he's he's just <laughs> and there's a, vehemently a, a, like denying the a fact bug, that he's eating bug bugs leg off the table, just sticking out of his mouth. Mm. Yeah, uh, I like the dance scene. 
where uh, um, um, uh, during the party where mm-hmm. uh, Dragon's dancing and they drop the mirror and everyone's like aghast. He doesn't have a reflection, but he just thinks that he's dancing so good. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually, like, there's this weird thing where, like, The Fearless Vampire Killers is a movie people have forgotten, except for the mirror gag. And that mirror gag, <laughs> that mirror gag popped up in Dracula Dead and Loving It. It popped up in um, uh, the Hugh Jackman movie Van Helsing. It's actually really cool in that movie, I think. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a good one, too. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of interesting because although Mel Brooks didn't retire after Dracula Dead and Loving It. That was his last film as a director. He's produced on Broadway uh, a lot of his own stuff, and of course he produced the remake of Producers. To date, he could still direct a film at age 94. I would like him to. I'm just saying that as of this recording, that is his last feature film as a director. Mm. Um, He has tried to uh, get um, uh, a couple times tried to make Spaceballs 2. Uh, yeah, didn't they do like uh, an animated series at one point? Uh, they did. Yeah, which I believe lasted one season. Oh, is that true? <laughs> we need to get on that. Okay, noted. <laughs> you, um, want to double, uh, you can double check that if you I want. will double check that actually. <laughs> the, um, the joke we kept hearing in 1987 about Spaceballs was uh, like a few years later they were going to make another Spaceballs movie, and the title was going to be Spaceballs Three: The Search for Spaceballs Two. And I really wish they had done that. I don't yeah, know where were, that got started. They, that was one of them. One of the scripts he's trying to work. The other one was uh, just uh, um, Spaceballs to the quest for more money. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that was the official name. That would be an app title today. True. Uh, yeah, it turns out Spaceballs the animated series was one season, and uh, Daphne Zuniga and Joan Rivers uh, and Mel Brooks all came back for it. So I guess oh, nice. we have okay. to do it on cancer. Yeah, <laughs> the animated series. Darn. Darn right. <laughs> uh, no, I'm really excited. We actually need to do that. I'm writing that down. Spaceballs, the theories. Um, but yeah, so Mel Brooks lives on, obviously, as a person, but also his, his movies... Many of them remain popular, and the ones that don't are still mostly funny, except for Life Stinks. Um, but, um, I, again, I think he's made more comedy classics than most filmmakers could ever dream to. And there's several yeah. other filmmakers who made multiple comedy classics, but Mel Brooks is definitely top tier, and I'm a huge fan. And Whitney, I want you to give your last thoughts on Mel Brooks, and I want to give uh, Sam the final say uh, in the episode. Oh. I'm I'm really happy to have grown up with Mel Brooks. I think he informed my corny sense of humor in a lot of very important ways. Uh, History of the World Part 1 and Spaceballs in particular. Uh, I watched Spaceballs uh, dozens of times before I even saw Star Wars. Like, that kind of comedy was more important to me than the genuine article, in fact. That Uh, explains so much about you. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. No, I, I grew up, you know, watching Mel Brooks movies and spoof movies and reading Mad Magazine, and I, and that's the way I learned about uh, a lot of pop culture things. Not through the things themselves. I was a kid; I didn't know how to access those things, but I could access Mad Magazine, and they were educating me along the way. Yeah, them and, and Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, it's because of Mel Brooks that uh, until I was maybe around. 14 years old, I assumed that the bulk of the world's population was Jewish. 
I <laughs> because I, I I watched a lot of of these movies and there's a lot of Jewish humor in it. There's a lot of Yiddish uh, aphorisms in it. There's a lot of Yiddish humor, a lot of Yiddish jokes. Uh, Mel Brooks was a Borscht Belt comedian. And he sort of came from uh, that those comedy traditions, and so I'm seeing these movies. I'm seeing a lot of uh, like. Yiddish aphorisms and a lot of uh, uh, Yiddishisms in a lot, not just Mel Brooks, but a lot of the humor I'm watching. And I assumed that this was for a mainstream audience. I figured that's what everyone was going to the movies to see, to, to see their faith depicted on screen. So I assumed for the longest time that if you were to like trek out into the middle of America and find the small town in Kansas, all Jewish. All, you know, mo- most of Europe is Jewish. Uh, everybody's Jewish in the world. And it wasn't until I was maybe... And then when I went to junior high school, I went to a Jewish majority junior high school. We got Yom Kippur off, for instance. Uh, I-, I thought as as a-, a wasp that we were in a vast minority here in Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it wasn't until many, many years later that I began to understand that no, this, that's not that's not the way the world is made up. Uh, but it, it it was nice. It was nice to be misled by Mel Brooks for a while. Uh, I just realized something I want to bring up before we uh, before we conclude. Uh, there was this is a bit of a tangent, but it's going to get back around to Mel Brooks in a second. Mm-hmm. I saw a documentary when I was in film school about the sword and sandal genre. You know, the Hercules films, the the peplum genre. Yeah, and the documentary was mostly about how the sword and sandal movies were. Uh, uh, how how they impacted the gay community in America because there wasn't a lot of uh, queer cinema uh, that was available and a lot of them these movies were very homoerotic and there was something that they showed in that movie and I've never been able to track it down outside of that documentary and I can't even remember what that documentary is called but it was a trailer from the 1960s for a film called My Son the Hero which is a sword and sandal hmm. comedy, apparently. Yeah. And the trailer was, as near as I can tell, they didn't give credits for it. Uh, the uh, the narrator was Mel Brooks, and he had apparently written the voiceover dialogue for all of the characters, and it was all like a sub, like a small part. Every every character in this big Greek fantasy story. Uh, talked like someone from the Bronx. And it was clearly very, very funny. And I don't know if it was just a trailer or if they did a whole, you know, track for the whole movie, a la, you know, uh, Kung Pao under the fist or whatever. But if anyone knows where I can find that, at least the fake trailer, and if anyone can confirm whether or not that was Mel Brooks... I would be fascinated. I have been looking for that thing for like 20 years. <laughs> Here it is on YouTube. Is it actually? No, I'm, you I'm, lie. I'm, I'm I, I've looked I on YouTube I didn't, many I didn't a find time. it that quick. I didn't no. find it that quick. But if anyone quick, knows was, where would, it is, if anyone knows why that existed, where the, what the story is behind it, I would be fascinated. Please tweet me. I'm at William Bibiani. Uh, Sam, we're, we're wrapping up our Mel Brooks episode. I want you to take as much time as you want uh, wrap this up. Tell us uh, everything you want to say. Um, yeah, I like most Mel Brooks movies. I think uh, most of them have at least some funny parts. If not, everything about it is 
hilarious. Uh, I I do want to touch on that Marty Feldman is amazing in everything. Uh, didn't talk about when we talk about Young Frankenstein or Silent Movie enough. Um, um, and uh, that's about it. Uh, quick PSA. Uh, I mentioned I do have epilepsy. Uh, if you do see someone having a tonic-clonic seizure, please don't stick anything in their mouth. Hmm. It's super dangerous. You could choke them to death. Don't try to hold their jaw open. You could break their jaw. Roll them on their side, put something soft under their head, and wait for the seizure to stop. Call an ambulance. If uh, they fall in water, uh, hit their um, sustained uh, some kind of injury during the seizure, uh, it's their first seizure, or um, it lasts more than, I want to say, three or four minutes. So, yeah. Uh, the, uh, PSA, over. Thank you for uh, that. I think that, that, is, that is super important. Thank you for um, that. I don't think people hear that enough. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Do you, real um, fast, do you, do you have, what's your favorite Mel Brooks movie? Like, if you had, like, one uh, for, like, you just, you, you people haven't seen a lot or at all. Like if you had to pick one to start with, what would you what would you say? I want to say Blazing Saddles. It's either Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I mm. I can't I can't dispute that at all. It would yeah. weird. It would have been weird if you'd said like Life Stinks. I would be like, really? Oh, oh no, no, no. But like, yeah, that may, that's <laughs> that's right. You want to see the bad one? <laughs> well, there's nowhere to go but up. So maybe that is a good idea. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to our uh, retrospective about Mel Brooks. Obviously, we're all fans. We hope you are, too. And if not, maybe you've heard some things that would get you excited about it. His films are amazing. We hope you uh, check them out and enjoy them. Uh, if you would like to sponsor an episode of Your Critically Acclaimed, you can go to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and sign up for our upper tier, much like Sam here, who has been a wonderful co-host, and we are very grateful to have you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, is there somewhere you would like people to find you online or not or anything at all you want to plug? Um, I have a Twitter uh, at some underscore kind underscore of Sam. Uh, nice. Uh, if you want to see just Magic the Gathering stuff and uh, – I'm an unfortunate Astros fan, so just ask <laughs> sign stealing conspiracy theories and uh and movie stuff and whatnot. Uh follow me there and um Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again. And of course we're at Critic Acclaim. Uh, I'm at William Bibiani. I'm Matt Whitney Seibold. And, of course, we have a lot more other shows uh, here at the Critical Claim Network. Hope you enjoy them. We have a ton of exclusive content on the Patreon page, and you can always email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we may read your letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Thank Seriously, Sam, you've been wonderful. Thank you again. This has been a real treat, um, and it's we were really grateful to be able to do this episode with you. No problem. Yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, I never know how to end a podcast. So bye, I guess. <laughs>
Thank you for listening and join us again in podcast two, The Search for More Money. It's good to be the king. <laughs> <laughs>